Welcome to the AKC Podcast, an audio resource for the King's community following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures, which explore diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Lecture resources and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Hello, I'm Kate Crosby. I'm Professor of Buddhist Studies at King's College, and I'm talking to you today about Buddhism and the case of the missing body. I want in this lecture to look at Buddhism's attitude towards the body, its understanding of the mind-body relationship, and why we tend to understand uh, Buddhism as having expertise in mind science and not particularly in the physical realm um, today. So first, I'd like to say a bit about Buddhism's um, reputation for expertise in in mind science and also the um, problem of samsara in Buddhism. So Buddhism's emphasis on meditation as a means of transformation led it to develop expertise that in the global world is recognised as an advanced science of the mind and there's a lot of interest in that now. Um, but I want to consider what happened to Buddhist understandings of the body as its meditation technologies were spread and adapted globally in the modern world. Since our problem situation, according to Buddhism, is that we are caught up in the cycle of rebirth, samsara, due to defilements based on greed, hatred and delusion, this means that our experience, depending on our intentional action, karma is embodied. So you can see in the uh, PowerPoint slide an Tibetan image of the wheel of life and there we are being reborn in different embodiments um, according to our karma and it's according to so our action it's according to our, the intentions underlying that action that we get reborn so positive intentions uh, based on non-greed non-hatred non-delusion lead to rebirth as a human or in a heavenly realm and negative intentions um, based on greed hatred delusion lead us to be reborn in um, hells um, as animals um, or as hungry ghosts. So that means our um, rebirth is usually, there are exceptions, usually physical, um, and yet it's based on the intention behind the actions we do. So there's a, a cognitive or conscious element behind our physical embodiment. So Buddhists must have had a view of the physical self. Now I want to turn to the purpose of meditation. Um, so the purpose of meditation is to address those intentions. So the underlying um, greed, hatred and delusion, which in the wheel of life were depicted by three animals, the cockerel, the pig and, and the snake. Um, so if we're going to free ourselves from those poisons that underlie our intentions, um, we need to free ourselves from defilements and leave samsara, the round of rebirth. Now mind or intention is considered fundamental in Buddhism, it underlies actions and it informs the outcomes of those actions. So if we use meditation we can work on our responses, our attitudes and our understanding and also, as I'll explain, our body. So meditation then is used to change how we respond and how we behave. There are two broad outcomes of meditation, 
Peace or Samata, uh, translates as tranquility, which strengthens and stabilizes the mind and makes it workable. So it's not so much about tranquility as such, but about having a very um, adaptable, pliable mind. And then Vipassana, insight into the Buddhist truths, which are summarized as suffering or insecurity, um, i.e. the idea that um, all experiences are ultimately suffering either because they are suffering or because we will lose them, become separated from them or no longer enjoy them. So suffering is one, impermanence is another, and no self, the lack of an individual self in our individual um, being. So there's no soul in Buddhism. And both samatha, this medita meditation outcomes that are about the strength of the mind, and vipassana, meditation outcomes which are about um, tranquility, both are needed for liberation according to Buddhism traditionally. Okay, returning to slide, uh, the next slide now about defilements in Buddhism and in modern mindfulness. So I've mentioned that our karma and the intentions that inform it are what bind us in samsara. So karma and the intentions behind it, they lead to defilements and these defilements are of two kinds. So the first um, kind is the five hindrances that prevent us from making progress. And the second is the um, five, is the um, sanyojana, the, uh, the fetters. Those bind us to samsara over many lifetimes. So you've got two different kinds of defilement. Um, we're more familiar in uh, meditation in a therapeutic context with the first type, the hindrances. Um, and you'll see in the slide the um, descriptions of different hindrances, such as agitation, um, sloth and torpor. Um, and the effect they're meant to have on the mind, with the mind um, that is stilled and is trained being like a clear, still pond. Um, now, meditation in a therapeutic context tackles the five hindrances. That's based on a single life perspective, and those hindrances tend to be associated with other problems such as depression and agitation, anxiety. So that's why we can use the meditation that Buddhism developed to tackle those hindrances in a therapeutic context. And obviously that's based on the idea that there is just one life and you're only trying to um, make change in this life. But for Buddhism, that's just a first step. Um, so it's the other defilements, the fetters that bind us over many lifetimes that are the real target of meditation. And those fall, tend to fall outside of the remit of um, modern mindfulness practices in a in the therapeutic or global and secular context. But Buddhists were really interested in um, how to escape samsara, the round of rebirth, and how to use meditation to radically transform ourselves. So to understand how they thought this worked, we need to look at um, the next slide, the mind and body in Buddhism. So in Buddhism, there is no soul, as I've already mentioned, and there is no mind-body divide. There are polarities, so we are made up of physicality, consciousness and aspects of consciousness. Now, these are complex. It's not a single physicality. It's not a single consciousness. And each moment of consciousness, each state of consciousness has multiple aspects to it. So that's not um, as completely different from the idea that 
there is just a single one consciousness underlying all reality or something like that. Okay, so it's all complex and um, made up of many factors, and it's also all momentary. So all these factors constantly interact. So momentariness, i.e. the constant um, uh, loss and replacement of all these factors um, is relative. So physicality moves and disappears at a, a slower um, rate than consciousness. So we have relative momentariness. These different components, the physicality, the consciousness, consciousness and aspects of consciousness are believed in Buddhism to consist of numerous components called Dhamma. So we get the term Dhamma, it's a Pali term, um, which means um, truth or teaching, but it's used in the plural to mean these, um, these aspects of consciousness. So these Dhamma are constantly replaced and what meditation seeks to do is it seeks to influence the replacements. So change is inevitable according to Buddhism um, and that's one of the problems we face that uh, we suffer because of impermanence, because of the lack of a permanent self. But in Buddhism, they also think positive change is possible. So you can harness the inevitable change towards enlightenment and liberation. So you're going to try and change um, those components, uh, the Dhamma, from negative to positive. So let's now look at skillful and unskillful states of consciousness. So I mentioned already that intention, the intention underlying our actions is um, the crucial thing in when it comes to karmic consequences. And the Buddhists thought that consciousness can be um, analysed into different types, four different types. So they can be skillful or wholesome, and that means based on non-greed, non-hatred and non-delusion. Unskillful or unwholesome, based on greed, hatred and delusion. Resultant, which just means that they are an effect, they're not the cause of another um, form, moment of consciousness. Or non-functional, non so an odd term, non-functional, but it means having no karmic consequences. Um, so meditation seeks to uproot the um, greed, hatred and delusion and create skillful, resultant and non-functional states. So everything except for the uh, unskillful states of mind. And these, um, the final states, the non-functional states, these are the types of consciousness experienced by highly developed and enlightened beings. So that's the direction we're aiming for. So meditation then, um, I mean, just to give a simple example, you might have a problem with anger. So you might do a meditation on loving kindness to develop a more positive attitude to yourself and other beings. Um, or you might um, be restless and use a meditation on breathing to calm the mind and to dampen down that restlessness. So that's at a very basic level. Um, and so Buddhists have many different meditation techniques to address these different issues. Um, so now let's turn to look, we looked at consciousness um, and how meditation seeks to address that. But what role does the body, uh, the body play in this? So what is the position of the body in Buddhism? And unsurprisingly, um, it's one of interdependence. 
So I'm now just going to take us through a few of the different ways that the body is um, used in meditation. And um, the first one is that it's a support of meditation. So the Buddha's um, abandonment uh, in the Buddha's life story, he first tries many different ways of gaining freedom from samsara. And he goes through a period of six years of striving to um, striving to reach the truth or somehow break the bonds of samsara. And as part of that, he takes undertakes severe asceticism. So practices such as uh, living off a single grain of rice a day, um, uh, not washing, staying out in all extremes of temperatures. And then he has this realization that all this is doing is obscuring his mind, making him um, distracted by pain. And so what he and, and these practices they still continue to this day in India, but these practices were aimed at essentially overcoming one's um, status of being subject to the body. So getting beyond it and also used to burn off karma, which in some traditions was regarded as a physical substance. So he abandons that and he accepts a, um, a meal, a simple meal from a woman called Sujata and you'll find her um, a slide of um, showing the enlightenment of the Buddha in the next slide. Um, so he um, and he finds that when he's eaten the meal, his mind becomes calm and focused. And it's from that point on he starts um, developing meditation, which he has practiced before. But he goes through states of um, tranquility um, called jhana. And then from that position enters into um, a moment of extreme insight. And this insight um, makes him understand karma, makes him understand his past life, and it makes him understand um, how to um, break through um, samsara. So this moment of enlightenment comes after this meal. And so in Buddhism, the body has to be supported, but not indulged, in order to provide a good basis for one's mental development. And that that in turn um, influences whether we can break um, free from samsara. So, but the body is important then. Um, what's it made up of? Well, all physicality, according to Buddhism, is comprised of four qualities. These are solidity, cohesion, heat, and motion. And they are labeled by the names of the four elements basic elements, earth, water, fire and wind. So when you see the term earth in a Buddhist text, it often means solidity. Or if you see water, it's talking about the quality of cohesion, fire, heat and wind for emotional movement. And even something you might think is earth actually has um, cohesion in it. So it has elements of these other qualities. Um, now there's an interdependence between physicality and consciousness, as we've already um, mentioned. So in Buddhism, consciousness is produced by the body um, and it's dependent on physicality. Um, though after the death of this body, life does continue and it continues through three aspects going forward. So heat, vitality and consciousness. And they basically end up 
as a flux combining um, with other physical components leading to the next birth. Um, those different, so heat, vitality and consciousness. Heat is obviously a physical, um, consciousness obviously, consciousness and polarity and vitality is, uh, combines both uh, aspects. Um, another way in which consciousness is dependent on the body is that it arises dependent on sense organs and sense objects. So you only have sight if you have a functioning um, eye and um, something to be seen. For some, there's also um, a physical basis for consciousness in the heart and some forms of Buddhism. So um, that's another way then that consciousness depends upon the body. There are some exceptions where consciousness leaves the body um, and um, but I, that's a bit more technical, a bit more detailed, and I won't be going into that here. Okay, so um, the physicality of the body then can, how another way that relates to meditation is that it can be the object of meditation. I've already mentioned breathing can be an object of meditation and that's physical. Um, so it's motion and um, then you have these derived physical aspects like touch and things like that derived from the basic four um, uh, aspects of materiality. Um, you can also do meditation on the body um, and both types of meditation can be used to support samatha and vipassana. So tranquility, as we learnt, um, meditation on breathing can calm you, make your mind more gentle. Same with meditation on the body. But both can also lead to insight because you watch the flux and you see that things are temporary. You can see that there is no self, according to Buddhism, um, this kind of thing. So some meditations just lead to one type of outcome, but most meditations will lead to elements of both uh, samatha and vipassana. Meanwhile, um, the body is, um, so we've got the ways that um, consciousness and also meditation depend on the body, but also the body is dependent on mind because it's through um, the states of, the, of mind that we have speech and action, even action we would consider non-volitional. So um, we, these, um, this interdependence then uh, is present both in this life that makes you live, but it also leads on to the next life. And all this is in flux, so there's no stable, fixed physicality or consciousness, and there's no stable soul. Um, the next thing I want to talk about then is taking this a bit further and looking at the benefits, uh, the beneficial effects of meditation in the physical realm, so or on the body. Um, and I've summarised this as jhana, joys and miracles. So um, the interdependence between physical and consciousness, materiality and consciousness, and the fact that rebirth is made up of a mixture of both, of both aspects, means that pre-modern Buddhists assumed that consciousness, including meditative states, influenced the body. The first thing I want to mention here is jhanas. So jhana are these elevated st states of consciousness, and they were 
believed to be parallel with um, uh, heavenly realms. So if you get a certain level of jhana, you can travel to a particular um, realm and you can in fact create a kind of um, a, a subtle body, as it were, to travel to these realms. Um, but at a more basic level, jhana um, is meant to make the body calm and happy so that the lower stages you get this tranquility you you end up experiencing a state of joy and happiness and um, at the higher levels um, you can um, as I mentioned travel and um, even um, end the physical processes so Buddhists believe you can end all um, physical and mental processes for seven days and then if you leave it longer, you will die. But <clears throat> they use then um, meditation to alter both states of consciousness and believed that that meant that people who had those higher state of states of consciousness could have magical powers um, and perform um, uh, perform what we call miracles. And this they did by influencing the nature of the um, the materiality. So if they wanted to move something, they might emphasize the um, the motion aspect of materiality because all materiality has these different aspects. So bring that to the fore. So there was a kind of um, a logical um, follow through from these understandings of materiality to the um, area of miracles. So whereas we might think of uh, Buddhism as a kind of scientific religion, that would be at the opposite end of um, belief in miracles. Actually, they see what we'd call miracles and magical powers as an extension of um, developing prowess in meditation and states of consciousness. Now I want to look at um, the um, what this meant, what this idea that the body and mind were related and um, and constantly interacting, um, what this led to in the centuries after the death of the Buddha. So what happened, and I'm now looking at the way Buddhism draws on scientific models of change, and I've mentioned obstetrics, chemistry, grammar and maths. So as um, physical sciences developed after the lifetime of the Buddha, Buddhists drew on understandings about how to bring change in the physical realm to enhance their meditation practices. So they applied to the body processes of change used in different arenas, and I'm just going to mention medicine, particularly obstetrics, so the treatment of the baby within the womb, chemistry, especially the purification of mercury and gold, and generative grammar. So a little bit about, bit about all of these. So um, obstetrics, the treatment of the baby in the womb. In ancient India, people believed you could, uh, that staying in the womb, being a baby, was a difficult and dangerous time. And they thought you could use medicine and other means to enhance the life of the baby and also to enhance its character. Now, in quite a lot of religious traditions, the um, image of the new being coming to life within the womb is used for as a, a metaphor for um, the development of a, a new 
superhuman being or, or yes so the idea that the buddha um starts from a seed within us and develops into um uh, a full buddha um that idea is found in quite a lot of religious traditions so you could say this is a metaphor for new life a new and perfect life being developed however in um, buddhism they took this quite literally as well and um, in the meditation practices i've been looking at these are uh, from southeast asia sri lanka and southeast asia they thought well if you can um, use these medicines to change the baby in the mother's womb how about we use the same process to change the buddha we're trying to develop within us and in ancient india they would use um and you still find this in ayurveda they would use um, pulverized substances um, to be inhaled in the nostril um, right side if you're treating treating a male um, embryo left side if you're treating a female embryo and they would also um, change the sex of the baby uh, in Ayurvedic medicine or they have had methods to do so and um, the and the how this works in meditation is the um, they would use meditation so when you do meditation if you get to a very focused state sometimes you have experiences of light um, or physical experiences and these are called nimitta or signs and these so basically what's happened is your meditation state has created particular visions or something physical and they would use these as the thera, um, pharmaceutical substance so having created this um, image would then introduce it into the body and down into the um, through the nostrils so just like Ayurvedic medicine bring into the body and down to between the heart and the navel where the new Buddha is being developed and um, now we turn to chemistry so the purification of mercury involves the repeated um, infusion of sulfur which is regarded as a female element with mercury the male and it's purified through repeated um, uh, suffusion and in this meditation practice these elements that are taken into the body through the nostrils they're taken down into the womb and back out again repeatedly and moved around the body so there's a suffusion of the physical body which is impure with these purified um, states mental states through their signs the physical signs vision and um, feeling that they have created back and forth so very repeated so if i uh, one of the manuals of this meditation practice that's in the british library that i've been looking at you have about eight thousand um repetitions to do of these because you're going through these different stages towards enlightenment and you've got to keep bringing them into the body to transform the body and it will become an enlightened body the next thing I've mentioned is generative grammar. So generative grammar is um, where you, it's particularly associated with Sanskrit and ancient Indian religions. And it started off within religion as um, a way of ensuring grammar of Sanskrit was absolutely correct because you wanted to uh, use Sanskrit language to um, mediate with and eventually control the gods. 
and so you had to get it right. So they were very keen on grammar and they developed a system of grammar where the whole of the Sanskrit language is developed from just tiny um, uh, short aphorisms and um, so short verses. So a, a small grammar listing the rules um, is enough to produce the entire language and it does through through a process of substitution. So you have an element of language, you might add a process to it and then you um, can create a um, a new element of the language and so on until you get the full language. And um, this type of grammar you also find it in Pali. So these are two sacred languages to Buddhism. And it got drawn on in um, meditation because they realized that, so language is one of those magical things that language is physical. I make sound, the physical sound through the physical organs of my body, but it starts in my mind. And it, um, it then has this ability to become the physical form of language and then go across to you and then you're understanding something so it's affecting your consciousness so it's language is is kind of magical you know and then you can even represent it physically and that sound is there and that meaning is there in the physical um in the physical form of letters and so um the meditators use the visual oral and oral elements of language um Pali or Sanskrit um, and you represented the um, different meditative stages with syllables and replaced those syllables and combined them to combine the elements that create the Buddha. Um, so we're starting off with um, technologies that we can see working outside in the external world, you know, of some aspects of the obstetrics definitely working. Um, chemistry, we get purified mercury and you can use similar methods to um, then use mercury to purify gold, um, the ultimate representation of methanol purity and also um, grammar. And, um, but these are being used in meditation to create a new enlightened body. Um, and how does this work? Well, we can see um, in practice how this works by looking at a couple of modern versions of this. So um, you've got in a PowerPoint slide an image of um, a monk called Sot, who was the abbot of a temple called Wat Paknam in Thailand, and he um, simplified this method and is showing and also used modern teaching techniques, so showing people how to um, bring these images down into the body. And um, you've got the image also of a woman and the different places she needs to bring these images in to her body. That's the Dhammakaya practice. In the Dhammakaya practice, you actively visualize these qualities, whereas in most more traditional forms, you just meditate using the breath and a, a kind of mantra, and then these images will form. Okay, so the, uh, the body then is purified and strengthened through these repeated progressive meditation exercises that draw on physical sciences and use those physical science techniques of transformation, those physical sciences, to connect the changes in consciousness you get in meditation um, to the body through the medium of the, the visual experiences and the physical experience you have in meditation. So it's become quite complex. 
Now I just want to mention um, about this, obviously this change in the body is not just going to be used for transformation for enlightenment, it's used for practical ends, so particularly for protection and tattoos. So the use of meditation then is believed to have physical benefits in the present life. Um, and just as mercury becomes more dense, pure and impenetrable through the process of purification, um, so the body was believed to become more impenetrable and to gain protection. Used a lot by uh, soldiers and um, and the like. So you, if you went into battle, you might have a shirt with these magical signs on, um, created through this process. Um, so these practices and similar mechanisms, um, sometimes using ink, were used in the creation of protective symbols and tattoos. And while the connection with meditation is now lost and the tattoos tend to come from handbooks, we can see traces of this practice in Southeast Asian protective tattoos today. And there you can see an image of Angelina Jolie's back with one of these protective tattoos developed originally through these um, meditation and substitution techniques where you basically keep replacing or purifying the impure substance using these um, pure qualities of Pali language, of meditation qualities. So um, again, protective tattoos is something we might think of as being at the opposite end of the meditation spectrum, but in the pre-modern world, they came together. So what's happened? So I now want to turn to the next slide on the disappearance of the body in modern meditation. Why don't we connect the Buddhist anticipation of transformed physicality with Buddhist meditation today? Well, the answer lies in the colonial period and the wars, epidemics and destruction and looting of the British in Burma um, and say the French in Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam led the Burmese to believe, I'm going to take the example of Burma um, and I'll explain why in a minute, led the Burmese to believe that the predicted end of the Buddha's teaching was nice. So there was a prediction, uh, many predictions actually, that when people stop behaving in a good way, um, when the Buddha's teaching is no longer practiced and is no longer accessible, then we have wars, epidemics, and we start destroying, killing each other. And the th entire century, the, so the 19th century, and um, the three Anglo-Burmese wars um, led Burmese to think, right, that moment has come. And it was approaching the kind of mid-cycle, two and a half thousand years after the death of the Buddha, uh, kind of mid-cycle in the anticipated um, period of um, the Buddha's teaching lasting. So what happened then um, in response is that famous teachers such as the monk Lady Sayadaw taught that we should all meditate and practice other Buddhist practices now as much as possible to try to get enlightenment now before the teaching disappeared, while it's still possible. And he transformed meditation, emphasizing using the liberating vipassana and downplaying samatha. The reason he did that was because he needed to get there fast. So focus on vipassana, focus on insight and realizing Buddhist truths. The downplaying samatha, it's um, which is associated with physical benefits and miraculous benefits is because it would slow us down, would require too long a path. Uh, the image you've got there is of Lady Sayadaw 
one of a few monks who were really important in making this transformation of meditation so that it was accessible and fast. Now, this had several effects, and so I now want to look at um, how this avoidance of the physical realm and samatha um, circumvented um, British colonial rule, but also just touch on an opposite uh, response in meditation, uh, which we tend to know less about because it didn't get exported, um, and that is the emphasis on samatha and opposing British colonial rule. Um, so, Lady Sayadaw's um, Emphasis on vipassana and insight and downplay of samatha protected meditation um, because the Cartesian mind-body divide, so the idea of them being separate, um, influenced Western science and influenced Western religion. So there was a clear divide between matters of the spirit and matters of um, the physical world. And that at the time had you know, been going on for some time and meant reinterpreting the Bible in a more metaphysical, um, in a more um, metaphorical way when it came to matters of the world, like not believing in the seven day creation of the world. So those changes from the 18th century onwards influence Western sciences and influence British attitudes. So Western sciences and technologies competed in such areas as medicine and chemistry, tried to downplay local practices, even tried to ban them, and also took control of them. Even, um, even where medicines actually had been um, learnt from India, such as the eradication of smallpox, um, sorry, such as inoculation against smallpox, initially came from Asia, um, but they would say, well, the Western methods are better. And then when um, vaccine came in, so Jenner's vaccine wasn't originally very safe in Asia because of the use of calf um, lymph as the medium caused all sorts of problems, including uh, the uh, great pox, syphilis. Um, but it, um, the West tried to impose it and tried to compete with local medicine. Um, so there was competition in that area. They took over, you know, uh, mines and, um, you know, extraction of uh, minerals and that kind of thing. So chemistry as well, but tended to discard matters of the spirit. I won't talk about missionaries here because they were obviously <laughs> looking to... Uh, paying attention to matters of spirit, and although there is a relationship between missionary work and colonialism, officially the British had a policy of non-involvement in matters of religion in their colonies, and that meant that religion became an the arena through which to challenge the British. I've um, A famous example of this in, in Burma is the um, shoe debate, which um, flared up several times in the 19th century, where British um, would uh, go to sacred sites wearing their shoes and um, and then whereas out of respect one should always remove one's shoes at the temple and this was used actually to um, challenge British rule and um, it led to the Viceroy of India on his visit having to change his um, change his itinerary to avoid a place where they had put up signs saying you have to remove your shoes. So the Burmese use this um, non, um, this 
non-intervention in matters of religion, which initially they were very upset about because they didn't, weren't protecting Buddhism as they'd promised to do. They used it as a way of challenging the British. But it also um, really probably saved um, meditation in a way because it re reducing the emphasis on the physical powers that Samato should bestow. And these were now challenged by Western military and medical advantage, advances. Um, Vipassana, which is about insight and about a spiritual development, um, is kind of safe and outside of the arena of British interests, um, and also unchallenged by British advances. But Vipassana wasn't the only response. So there are um, there's another tradition within Burma, which is far less um, familiar, and that's called Weza. Uh, sometimes translated as wizards, and, and the Weser tradition emphasised samatha practices, and and they believed they could use these practices to develop and other things such as alchemy, so chemistry, of uh, purification of gold. Um, they believed they could use that to develop quasi immortality, to so to extend the physical body's life span. And their aim was because they also believed that. Um, Buddhist teaching was coming to an end, our historical Buddha um, from the 5th, 6th century before the Common Era, and that the best thing was to stay human as long as possible, because it's only as human that you can really um, understand and act on the Buddha's teaching, uh, so that you could meet the next Buddha. So you're basically waiting for the new Dharma, and when you meet the Buddha, you'll be there at the beginning of the Buddha's teaching, much easier to gain enlightenment then. So this, um, these ways of practices, they are kind of the opposite of um, uh, Vipassana, but they're for the same reason. And because of their emphasis on strengthening the body, they um, are associated also with um, rebellion. So people wanting the protection and feeling the immortality of these practices. Okay, so we've got our vipassana um, as emphasised in Burma. I want to now look at how that then leads out to our secular practices. So I now want to look at the fast track to enlightenment that vipassana creates, jumping the spiritual secular divide. So the fast track vipassana approach meant that meditation was now shortened. Um, you're seeking changes in understanding rather than physical changes. And it's designed to be practiced by all, not just those retired from everyday life, like um, meditating monks and nuns, uh, which you know were a small minority, but also lay people. So it ends up um, being taught in large groups and in urban centres. So this 19th century development paved the way for the adoption of Buddhist meditation in secular life. And this happened from the early 20th century in fact but it particularly happened from the 1970s onwards. Now both Burmese Vipassana and Zen meditation they are the two main influences in modern mindfulness. Zen meditation I haven't talked about it here but because of um, Confucianism and other changes in Chinese history the um, Chinese Chan, so then Japanese Zen, had already adapted to um, uh, be applied in everyday life, so meditation in everyday life, and that also related to other changes, so 
specific changes in Buddhist philosophy about understanding Nibbana and Sangsara as one. So both Burmese Sampasana and Japanese Zen, for different reasons, um, you can use meditation in an accessible way in short episodes um, by anybody um, and in everyday life. And those, um, for historical reasons, become the two, and because of their adaptiveness, become the two main influences on the development of modern mindfulness. So, um, drawing um, towards the close now, I sort of I hope I've shown that um, we've got a mind-body relationship in Buddhism that is being left behind in the modern period. So my question now is, did Buddhism just provide a mind science? Um, well, in modern mindfulness, the Buddhist background to overcome not just the hindrances, but also the fetters, so all the defilements, is often lost. Um, and even when people have a Buddhist background as a teacher, that they may um, compartmentalise that when they're teaching in a, a secular situation. So the emphasis is always on changing states of mind rather than the body. And it's used oh, to create more focus at work or to overcome depression or anxiety. So these um, negative um, cyclical thoughts. Um, so the emphasis then is not on changing the body, really on changing states of mind. And we can see that um, plenty of studies to show um, that it tends to work. Um, I won't go into the processes now, but um, one of the things I think is quite interesting is that these tests to examine the effects of meditation. So there are um, tests within um, both social sciences and cognitive sciences about and medical arena you know, to test whether meditation really affects people and how it affects them. And the difficulty with that is, particularly in the medical sciences, is that when we test, we test things that can be repeated and can be shown physically. Um, so one of the um, tests to, so some of these tests to examine the effects of meditation, which initially focused on brain activity, now reveal physical findings such as cortisol levels. So um, cortisol, the stress hormone, is reduced through meditation and also telomeres. And I just want to mention telomeres in a bit more detail. So telomeres, they were discovered in 2009 and they're like the aglets, I'd look that word up, on the end of shoelaces. And they are um, associated, um, but they're found on DNA and they're associated with keeping DNA strings neat. So if you have long, healthy telomeres, um, that are sort of um, long and um, movable, they ensure accurate reproduction of DNA, while weak telomeres are associated with inaccurate reproduction and that in turn is associated with dementia and cancer. So, and you can test telomere health by the enzyme telomerase. So, and what's been shown is that mindfulness can um, help make telomeres healthy. And so we can help our physical well-being and our cognitive reserve with our um, by using mindfulness. And it actually doesn't take much 
mindfulness, just a regular practice of mindfulness, short regular practice to make a significant change. So a cognitive reserve, I should just mention, is the various aspects of mental function, including different types of memory that um, help us function and which start to disappear in old age or as people develop forms of dementia, whether old or young. Um, so we see then that actually some of the physical transformations um, of Buddhist meditation are being identified, but those are the ones that <clears throat> relate to our five hindrances in the current life and other physical problems. Um, so what in a way is perhaps sad is that mindfulness is based on just a component of meditation. And sadly, the disruption of the colonial period means that many of the physical practices are lost, very complex practices. Um, there are only a few traces of them and they have been adapted to survive in the modern period. Um, but another thing I want to mention is that our association of Buddhism with meditation and thinking of Buddhism as uh, Buddhists as being expert in the arena of mind science, this has um, an effect on our understanding of Buddhism and um, as a whole. Um, and we don't associate it with other technologies. However, historically, the Buddhist interest in the consideration of the relationship between physicality and consciousness and their interest in processes of change, particularly change that is going to reduce suffering, meant that they contributed to technological developments in other fields, such as hydrology, so how to harness the power of water um, and particularly um, using water to enable rice growing in India, which produced um, far more food and um, so was used to address food shortages and develop communities. And Buddhists were involved in the creation of uh, dams and irrigation systems in the earliest, uh, some of the earliest evidence we have for Buddhism in ancient India. Also involved in medicine, um, printing. So the development of printing is in part down to Buddhism. And I could mention some other things like um, uh, tea, <laughs> the use of tea, a discovery of, of the properties of tea in keeping us awake. So Buddhism then did have a big interest in the physical realm and in transformation of the physical realm as well. And meditation was thought to have um, a, an ability to change not just our mental states and the intentions underlying um, the uh, action, the karma that kept us in um, cycle of samsara but also change us physically, both for um, uh, spiritual purposes, but also for um, benefits in the current life. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. AKC, at the heart of King's thinking. Thank you.